For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And these verses tell us that, that God is angry. He's angry with the wickedness of men. It's only natural for a holy God to be angry with men's wickedness because he is a holy God and because we are sinners, that is only natural. But, but his anger isn't merely because people stumble under their sin unawares. No, Paul argues here in Romans 1 that people walk into their sin in full knowledge of what they are doing. God is angry at the wickedness of men because he has revealed himself. People have rejected him. They said, no thanks, God. And they've walked in their own ways, following their own heart's desire, refusing to acknowledge the Lord and honor him in any way. See, it's one thing to do wrong, but it's another thing altogether to know what's right and still do the wrong. Uh, for instance, right, picture yourself going on an errand. You got, you got things to do at your household, you got... You got stuff, so moms, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm picturing you, um, or dads, maybe, whatever. Moms, you, you're there, and you, you're ready to go, and, um, but there's still some, some dirty dishes in the sink, okay? But you just, you just kind of go out anyway, and you, you run and do errands, and, and then you come back, and you find not only are there dirty dishes in the sink, but there are what? There are more dirty dishes in the sink from your children who made themselves lunch and continued to, to pile on and pile harder, and your heart sinks because of a lack of servant's heart of your children and they didn't see that and they just left you're out serving them in your errand and then you come home and you got to serve them still like like you're their slave you feel like sometimes i see some smiles from you kids i see my wife waving her head in agreement because that that happens often but hey listen it's another thing altogether when same scenario and you're going out to run an errand and you see there are dishes, and you take that extra 15 seconds, and you say, hey, guys, guys, there are dishes in here. Can, can you please leave, uh, clean them? Because I'm going to go. I'm going to run these errands. And um, when I get back, can you have them cleaned? And when they say, yes, Mom, sure, Mom, yep, <clears throat> you go on out and run your errands, and you come back an hour later, and there are dirty dishes still there. Doesn't your heart sink in a greater way? Because your, your children, it's not just that they had a heart to serve but didn't notice it's that they refused to listen to you with a servant's heart. Instead, they did their own thing, demonstrated selfishness while you're out there serving them. That's what Paul's getting at in these verses. It's the wrath of God upon sinners, not upon ignorant sinners, but upon those who know full well that they are sinning, sinning in the full knowledge of the truth. And that's why God is angry. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, they, express, they suppress the truth. There is God's wrath 
is upon those who are taking the truth, suppressing it, denying it, pushing it down, covering it away so they can walk in their own their own way. Truth be told, that's true of all of us. Listen, right. Whenever we sin, that's what we do. We 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 will suppress the truth. Say there's some sin you're, you're thinking about doing, whether that's some lie you're thinking about telling, whether that's some scheme you're thinking about doing, whether it's some place you're thinking about clicking, whether it's some deed you're thinking about doing. What you, we don't sin in full knowledge of God. What we'll do is we'll, we'll take that and we'll, we'll say, well, well, God doesn't see, or, or God will forgive me, or God will, you know, and when you, you, take, you, take, and you start believing a lie, and then you, start, then you can go in your sin. In fact, that's even what Paul is talking about here down in chapter 1, verse 25, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping, serving the creature rather than creator. And that's how you're suppressing the truth. You're taking the truth in your mind. You're denying it so that you can do and walk in your unrighteous way. It's in all of us. And we all know the character of God. We all know right and wrong. And in our sin, we all are without excuse. The title of my message this morning is Without Excuse. My, my message comes, the title comes from the end of verse 20. If you see that it says, so that they are without excuse. Let's look at my first point here. God is known. They're without excuse because God is known. Verses 19 and 20. Look at verse 19. It says, because, why are they without excuse? Because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them if you will god god shows himself he plays show and tell you kids ever played show and tell yeah i want to play show and tell today okay here, here's here's what i chose i've got something in this box i want to show you and um, not necessarily tell you about because I, I chose some things in this box that are like so obvious what you need to do with them that We'll do that with them, okay? So, so first thing I have here is I have a, what do I have here? What's this? I have some ice, okay? I got some ice in my little show and tell box. And in my little show and tell box, I have your cup. And with my little show and tell box, I have some Fanta. Okay, now, now this is this is this is playing show and tell. I want to have something that's super obvious to you. Okay, so when you have ice, and when you have a cup, and when you have a Fanta, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to drink it. But first, you gotta you gotta take the ice, right? Put some ice in the in here, right? Yeah. I got some ice, and I gotta seal that up. And this is this is clear and obvious for everyone, right? And you take some ice, and then what do you do? You take the, you take the Fanta, and you pour it in the ice. Whoa! Right. And then what do you do? You drink it, right? Now that is obvious for anyone, right? Is it? Is it not? That that's what you do with with water, with ice, and a cup. And a Fanta. And it's clear what you should do with that. I'm just... just. That's what God has done. He's showed himself, done some show and tell, and hasn't hidden anything. 
It's just clear and plain as day. Look at verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And we're just going to camp here on this verse for a, for a season here. Um, but the reality is this, that God has made himself known through creation from the beginning of creation, from that very day when he said, let there be light until this very day. He has done show and tell with creation. He showed himself clearly and telling mankind about God. If Phil read Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. We sang the universe declares his majesty. And that's exactly what Psalm 19 is talking about. It's exactly what verse 20 is talking about. And if you go outside in the day and see the sun, you will see the glory of God. And if you go outside at night and see the moon or the stars, you will see the glory of God. And David continues in Psalm 19. There's no speech, nor their words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And the creation, you need to understand this, is not a novel to be read in the language, if you happen to know the language that God speaks in creation. No, the, the creation is more like a painting, which every tribe and tongue and people and nation can see and marvel at as, say, the, uh, the backdrop of a nice sunset. You see that and you can say, wow, like the other night, just out and just said, wow, that is amazing. And God paints his tapestry every night. Some of his tapestries are better than others, but they're all glorious. See, the creation is like a painting, something that all languages can go. Everyone can see the Mona Lisa and, and can, can, it doesn't matter whether you speak Russian or English or Polish or French. It's still a woman with a peculiar smile. It's more like a symphony, right? A, a melody played without words, yet communicates a range of emotions that touch the heart. And that's what Psalm 19 is talking about. There's no speech nor the words, but their voice is heard. And God is seen. In fact, even if you're blind and can't see the creation, you can know about the creation. Because David continues on, Psalm 19. In the creation, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, its circuit is to the other end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. In other words, the sun shines on all. And though you were blind, you could still go outside and feel the radiant heat of the sun upon your cheek. And know of the glory of God. In fact, even if you could neither see nor hear, you could still know God. Who's this? Helen Keller. Right there, I put her dates on there just so you kind of get a, a little perspective of who Kel, Helen Keller is. You know her eyes, kids, by the way, she was blind. Those are glass eyes. So she looks like she can see, but she can't. See out of there. She learned to communicate. If you've seen the, the movie The Miracle Worker, I think it's called, the communicate uh, with Ann Sullivan, who came and just started spelling words in her hand and trying. She just went, went through a, a big frustrating thing. And then once she understood that, that that means this and that this means that and this means that, she began to, to really learn and really grow 
And uh, amazingly, she learned how to speak for herself. And uh, she even, I think, was the first uh, blind deaf person ever to get a bachelor's degree in our nation. And, and she learned even to listen to others by reading their lips, by, by placing her hand upon their lips, by listening to them talk. She mastered Braille. She's an amazing woman. Well, at some point in her process of life and learning, um, her thoughts turned to God. And she had an opportunity to speak and correspond with uh, Phyllis Brooks, famous preacher and writer in Boston area. And uh, she told them, kind of in the, the, the series of things came out, that she always knew about God. Even before she could call God anything, she knew that, that God was there. She didn't know what it was. God had no name for her. Many things had no name for her. She had no concept even what a name was. But in her darkness of her isolation, she knew that she was not alone. Someone was with her. She felt God's love. And when she, she received the gift of language and heard about God, she said, I already knew. Even a blind deaf person knows about God. It's because God makes himself known in all of creation. Verse 20. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. That is, has been made among us, in us. We know of God. All of us have a seed of God within us to know. And if you look there at verse 20, there are particularly two things he's talking about. What we know, we know his eternal power and we know his divine nature. We know his eternal power and the, the grandeur of creation. We, we sang this morning, I sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise. Listen, and anytime you see the mountains or the depths or the rushing waters, you'll just go, wow. Um, one of the things Yvonne and I like to, to watch sometimes before we go to bed at night is these people hiking these long distance trails. And we've been watching people hiking along the Pacific Crest Trail and they, they hike along and they just kind of take their camera and go like this. And Yvonne and I are in bed and we're going, wow! And you think, oh, here, wow! I mean, it's just amazing view after amazing view after amazing view. Uh, when we were in California, we did pick up a, a hiker who was hiking the, the, the trail and he'd been on the trail for maybe three months or so, two months. I'm not sure how long he was. But not a Christian. But one of the things he said, he says, literally, I have been stopped. What did he say? Stopped in my tracks? Was, I had my breath taken away. That's what it was. So he, he went around and saw the creation of God and went, <gasps> like it was so grand and just so amazing that it took the breath away of a non-Christian. Such is the glories of the mountains. Such is the glories of the Grand Canyon. We'll go and we'll, we'll see that just wonderful place. Such is the glory of Yosemite Valley or waterfalls or rainbows speaks of the eternal power of God. You, you, can, you can see it in just the raw power. And, and if you ever are, are curious about that, like, like I do, every time I have a digging project, I get my shovel out, and I start to dig, and I dig like this much dirt, and I go, oh, man, that's a lot. And I look at how little dirt I've dug and go, wow. And to think about how big the earth is as compared to this little tiny dirt that I've shoveled and lifted and moved over just a little bit. The power of God and our planet is amazing. And, and, and you can see when devastation comes, right? When hurricanes come or earthquakes come 
or tornadoes come or tsunamis come. It is the power of God that that, that took, you know, weeks and months and years to build and wiped out in just a few seconds. I remember when a tornado went through the Belvedere area. Anderson's, is that the name of your friends, Hooks, the Anderson's? And uh, we went there and we did some relief help work for them. But that tornado went through and they said it lasted all of 15 seconds. And here was a house, a farmstead, right? And all these barns and trees and stuff and sheds and stuff were just all over. 15 seconds. It's the power of God. When one looks to the vastness of the heavens, that's where you really begin to see the power of God. And what, from what we understand... I mean, the power of God is, is incomprehensible. I mean, we cannot even understand this. What's this? <clears throat> the Hubble telescope. So, I don't know a lot about it, but I am intrigued by it. It was put into orbit in 1990. And without the light pollution of the earth, it's able to see the stars and the heavens and the galaxies in, in such a way that we can't ever hope to do here upon earth. And after about five years of use, the scientists dreamed up this idea of pointing this telescope at, a, at an empty dark patch in the sky close to the Big Dipper. So right, right there is where they, they were seeking to, to do it. There's the Big Dipper, and they said, okay, well, let's, let's point, like, let, let's, let's go right there. It's kind of a really dark spot in the sky, and let, let's, just, let's just point there and see what we're going to see. And, and there was some pushback um, uh, against that because time with the Hubble's telescope is kind of expensive because so many people are vying for it. They want to do research with it and they're going back and forth and and uh, demand was so high for all these other projects which are going to bring in money and this is going to, is it going to be so much, is it going to be worth it? And, and were they even going to see anything? I mean, they're pointing it at a black spot in the sky. And so on December 18th, 1995, they pointed the Hubble telescope right at that black dark spot in the sky and uh, spent the next 10 days letting the, the telescope just kind of focus on, on that spot. If you want to know how big that spot is, you take a needle, hold it out at arm's length, okay, and see through, see through that needle eye. That's how big a space that was, the Hubble telescope. And you know what they saw? That's what they saw. And that just begs the question, like, well, if this is in that dark spot, what's, what's beyond What's beyond? It's saw thousands. And, and these, are, these are galaxies. Now, some of these, I don't know, they might be a star, but they're <clears throat> all different colors, all different shapes, all different everything. Now, these, most of these are so far away in order to see, be seen as a blip. They are galaxies. We do see different like, spiral galaxies up there. We see some different sorts of things. And if you would go closer and closer and closer to them and travel those hundreds of millions of light years out of our galaxy, and then we're into those, their galaxies, you would see billions of stars in every single one of those. And, and we can kind of see that in some of the bigger ones, but the other ones are just happen to be far away. But if you would get close to them, you'd see billions and billions of stars clustered together like that. And we are just one of those. Just We're not any of those because we're in it, right? We're shooting out, but that's kind of what what we look like. We're just uh, one of hundreds of millions, billions of stars and one of billions of galaxies. That's the power of God. We cannot even begin to understand the power 
of God. Uh, but just this week, I saw on the internet um, just uh, some news that, that, that came out. I'm not sure if you saw this at all, just about how our universe is bigger than we ever thought. I, I read from Popular Mechanics because it just summarizes this, this article from, um, from this research place. I'll just, I'll just read this, a couple paragraphs. A new study from a team of international astronomers led by astrophysicists from the University of Nottingham with support from the Royal Astronomical Society, the RAS, has produced some astounding results. The universe contains at least two trillion galaxies, ten times more than the highest previous estimates. What's more, the new study suggests that 90% of all galaxies are hidden from us. Like, if you have galaxies behind that one, <laughs> tough luck, we can't see that one because it's in front of us. Um, and only the 10% can be seen at all, even with our most powerful telescopes. And the paper details this was published in Astrophysical Journal. It says, we're missing the vast majority of galaxies because they're very faint and far away, said Nottingham astrophysicist Professor Christopher Kosselis in a press release. A number of galaxies in the universe is a fundamental question of astronomy, and it boggles the mind that over 90% of the galaxies in the cosmos have yet to be studied. Who knows what interesting properties we will find when we study those galaxies with the next generation of telescopes. Previously, with the Hubble Telescope, the estimate was a 10 to 100 to 200 billion. And now they're saying, well, increase that by a factor of 10, like to like a trillion or, or two trillion. But you know what? Listen, here's, here's my guess, all right? Um, in 2018, they're going to launch the James Webb Space Telescope, right? It's, it's, on, it's on schedule for that. And, and I'm not an astrophysicist, but here's my prediction, Okay. I predict that when that comes out and they study more and more of that, this same article is going to come out 10 years from now. Oh, there are 10 more times of the galaxies than we thought. And in fact, I wouldn't even be surprised if it goes 100 times or 1,000 times more number of galaxies that are out there because I, I think that such is the power of God. That it boggles the mind. Actually, it, it just brings out the fact of how God how powerful God is. God tells us that the creation tells of his eternal power. And I think just that's, that's what it's broadcasting to everyone who walks on the earth. And the more we know and the more technology we, we have, and I've just talked about big, but we can also go small too. The more small technology we have, we're just amazed the wonders of God. But also, Paul says, God has known his divine nature can be clearly seen in the creation. Look again, verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power that we've talked about, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And I think that, that the power of God is, it, Paul was just talking about just the immensity of the universe, but when he talks here about the divine nature, I, I think that he's getting at the intricacies of creation, the order of creation. And if you will, the order of creation screams of a creator. Scientists today are debating the merits of our universe being a fine-tuned universe. That's a technical term that you can go out and see. In other words, right, the, the relationship between physical constants in our universe are such that, that if they were different in any way, our, our universe would collapse and would fall apart. And we're talking about things like speed of light. 
or the gravitational field constant, or, or even something as subtle as the, the ratio of weight between a proton and electron, if, if, if that were different. Many other things like that. What, what, what would take place? And scientists think about what would take place if, if these things were different. Could the universe even exist? Or would they all crumble into chaos? Okay, I want to read something for you here, which I don't fully understand, and you won't fully understand, but you'll understand the big picture of what's being understood. Okay? I don't even know if this guy is right, but it's, it's got to be, be close. So he said this, The sun burns by fusing hydrogen. When two hydrogen atoms fuse, 0.7% of the mass of the hydrogen is converted to energy. If the amount of matter converted were slightly smaller, 0.6 rather than 0.7%, a proton would not bond to a neutron, and the universe would consist only of hydrogen. With no heavy elements, there would be no rocky planets and no life. If the amount of matter converted were slightly larger, 0.8%, fusion would happen so readily and rapidly there would be no solar system in which to live. The number must lie exactly between 0.7 and 0.8. Now, again, I don't understand that, but what it does talk about is the intricate relationship between just protons and neutrons and electrons and the energy levels and the masses, and it's just got to be exactly right. And those who know... You know that there are things that are exactly right. And you can look, there are, there are dozens, maybe, of these constants that have to be. Otherwise, things wouldn't work the way that they do. And, he, and here's, here's the important thing with this, right? The laws of nature, the constants of nature, are such to allow our universe even to exist. And you change one or two of those, and our universe falls apart. And people say it's just chance. It's not chance. See, without gravity acting like it does, without light acting like it does, without protons, electrons acting like they do, without electromagnetic forces acting like they do, without strong and weak nuclear forces acting like they do, the universe couldn't sustain itself. It would, it would crumble. That's to say nothing, even of chemistry. So, so take a... If you add one more proton to an atom, you can change everything about an atom. I'm not sure if you ever thought about that, but carbon, atomic number six, atomic weight 12, atomic number six, okay? And if you add another proton to it, you get nitrogen, atomic number seven. So what's the difference between carbon and nitrogen? Well, one's a black, dark, solid mass, and the other is this gas, all because you had one more marble into the center. How does that work? I don't know. How is it that you add an atom to a molecule and everything changes about the molecule? You take some oxygen, right, O2, and you throw a couple hydrogens at it, break that up, and all of a sudden you get H2O, and H2O is water. And you go from, from this gas, and you throw another gas at it, and all of a sudden at room temperature, it's water. Or, oh, it's ice. How is it that just adding something else changes the molecular characteristics of everything. And if you take an, uh, if you take, uh, an oxygen away from carbon dioxide, you get poison. You just take a little bit away and it's really, really bad. And that's to say nothing of biology with plants and photosynthesis and respiration. It says nothing about creatures who have muscular systems and nervous systems and cardiovascular systems and DNA the complexity and order of the universe 
declares there's a divine being behind this is what I think he's talking about. You've seen this illustration, right? A watch. It's incredibly complex with gears and springs and screws. But nobody in their right mind comes across something that looks like this. And says, oh, what happened? Oh, I was digging in the backyard and I found this. Yeah, I just, that's how the earth was made. Formed by itself. People don't say that. And likewise, right? No one, no one comes to a, a world like ours and just says, just happened. Same, same thing there. However, I think it's far easier to explain the existence of a watch like that in nature that just kind of popped up than it does for our universe. Or taking a hike through the woods. What happens if you see something like this? It's orange and got some blue in it. It's on the ground. What do you say instantly if you're taking a hike through the woods? You kind of disgust. you like, oh, who threw out their pop can? Who was here before who threw that out? What? You, you don't say, oh, wow, look at that neat orange thing that came out of the ground. It doesn't work that way. And I think that's clearly what Paul is getting at when he's talking about the... Um, the whole fact about how the, the divine nature of God has been clearly seen. It's the order of the world. The order of the world is so orderly that it demands a designer. Nothing, the complexity of this world are just too much to happen by chance. You know, and there's huge discussion in the scientific world, apart from a holy, personal, transcendent God, just trying to understand this, right? Intelligent design is the is the, the wave of what's even being talked about now. And uh, the reason why it's being talked about is because creation gives testimony of the fact that there is a creator. And I think that verse 20, right, clearly says it's the obvious that creation itself gives testimony to the creator for his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things have been made. So they're without excuse. In other words, right? You got to catch this, right? Everyone who walks on this planet or everyone who has ever walked on the planet because Paul is clear in verse 20, ever since the creation, anyone who has ever walked on the planet clearly knows about God, clearly knows that he created the world. But people don't like that. People don't like to be accountable to a, a watchmaker, People don't want, like to be accountable to a God who's going to have an influence and impact and authority in your life. They, they don't want a world governed by an omnipotent creator. They want to live life their own way. So what do they do? Tell me, verse 18, they suppress the truth. They live in unrighteousness. It's the suppression of the truth that allows them to live in their unrighteousness. But Paul says here in the end of verse 20 that they are without excuse. In other words, right, when anyone across the planet, stands before God, they are without excuse in their sin because they have known God and they will face his wrath for turning against the creator. In fact, it even, it even gets a little bit worse. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish heart was darkened. They're the first part of verse 20. There are two Greek words that are translated no. Okay, there's this word oida, 
which means to know by reflection or thinking uh, based on intuition or information. Oida is related to the word to see even. Uh, like video, we get that. Kind of seeing, understanding. Okay, I got it. Yep, I got it. And then there's this other Greek word. It's called gnosko. And that's like experiential knowledge. It's like, it's like knowing people. It's like interacting with them um, and, 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 and having some experience with the knowledge. That is like to, to know by observation and experience. And kind of, if you know Spanish, okay, like some or some of you study maybe, but oida is like saber, right? just, just to know facts, um, way of information. But the second word, gnosko, is like conocer, like to know somebody. Right, I saber my math. I know my math, but I conocer my daughters. I know my daughters. I know my friends. I know people. I, I've experienced them. I haven't experienced math. I just kind of know about it. <clears throat> Which word do you think is used here at this point? I'm, I'm not going to make you guess. But here, if I'm going to make a big point, it's the second one is used. So, in, in other words, when when God is saying here, when when Paul is saying <clears throat> that they knew God, he's not saying that they knew about God. He's not saying that they, oh, there was something that they knew something about. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was something. No, he says that they know God, even perhaps in some sort of relational way. Certainly some experiential way. They, they're in the creation and they've known it and they have experienced it. We have experienced God. For even unbelievers who suppress the truth, they all have had some sort of experiential knowing with God. They've experienced Him in, in one way or another. So you just think about this. It should give you, help you in your eagerness to preach the gospel. Because you're not preaching to, to blank slates of people. You know, everybody, my car salesman, I know that, that he knows God. There's something about it. He knows God. But he is what? He's just suppressed that truth and unrighteousness. And you know that's true of, of everyone. So, so be confident. Right? Be confident that, that if you're talking with someone and they're in creation... That they know God, that they know that God exists, what they've done, they've suppressed the truth. So you just need to get them to the truth, preach the truth, and perhaps God will change their heart so that they will, they will know what is, what is right. Now, sadly, though, what is true about God, what is known about God, is often rejected. Because this is where people know about God, and then they reject Him. And rejection is how I'm summarizing 21 through 23. It says, although they knew God, <clears throat> they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking. <clears throat> their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Describes all of humanity that we know about God, but refuse to honor Him. We refuse to give thanks, right? And in short, we reject Him. So we ought all to thank God for the life that He's given to us. We ought all honor Him for the greatness of who He is. And they haven't, even though they know God. Mankind, all of us, we've turned away. We've we've gone our own way. We've rejected God. 
and apart from the grace of God, our rejection leads to futility. We don't think as we ought to think. We don't feel as we ought to feel. And we don't live as we ought to live. Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool in his heart says there is no God. And, and oftentimes, there is the a priori argument, the very first thing that's said. There's no God, therefore I can live whatever way I want to. And you will find people who will just reject God, just write out, and then they can live however they want. And isn't it interesting that in our society, as educated as we would be, probably the most educated uh, country ever on the planet, in terms of people and numbers and what, what we know, isn't it that we as our society, how many of us are foolish in our land because we've rejected God? In fact, it's interesting. I heard um, Al Mohler made a comment about the presidential, first presidential debate. He said uh, in that presidential debate, there was zero reference to God. Now, that not, uh, not to be surprising, but he, he noted that in the past, there are there's often been like this soft God talk, like this, um, oh, God bless you, or God bless you at the end of the night, or, or whatever, or even some, just, just real, like, at least something there. There was zero reference. So I watched the second presidential election uh, debate. Zero reference to God. God has been just removed from this presidential election entirely. Because he's not convenient. If he was convenient and helpful to voters, he would do that. But that's a, that's a comment more on America than it is a comment on the candidates. Because if it would be helpful to them, they would be saying that. Trying to bring God into the picture. In fact, as I recall, Hillary Clinton sometimes brings up some, some religious experiences she's had in the past. Okay? Just whatever. Just some church. Go to, go to church for convenience. But the fact that they, God isn't even mentioned and out of the public sphere demonstrates what our society is like. Our society is basically taking God out of society. And verse 22, right, claiming to be wise, we became fools. Uh, I read an article this week uh, that seeks to do away with intelligent design because even intelligent design is like too much. Like, no, that, that can't be. There can't be. The, forget, forget God, holy God, who, regard, who you're accountable to. Forget that. Forget the designer aspect of things. There's got to be some other way. And so there are people who believe in panspermia. In, in other words, right, we, our life was seeded by other planets, and let me, just, let me just read a little bit. I'm just going to summarize a lot. But the public perception I'm reading now of intelligent design is that it's scientifically spurious, religious, religiously motivated idea that seeks to explain away the notion of Darwinian evolution through magical thinking. Some incarnations of intelligent design can be fairly described as such. Just magical thinking, like, like this is how it happened. The Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky, which displays showing... Uh, animatronic dinosaurs roaming through Eden employs a pseudoscientific presentation of the faith and biblical text as a counterweight to the voluminous scientific information supporting evolution. Okay, let's see how smart this guy is, right? He's saying, look at all that, all that religion stuff is bad. All that intelligent design is, is bad, right? We've got to be scientific, right? We've got to do there. But there are other alternative ideas that can explain the origin of life on Earth. What needn't be actively religious or even reject evolution to consider the possibility of intelligent design. That intelligence could have originated... Not on some spiritual plane whose existence can never be proven, but simply elsewhere in the cosmos. 
Religiously motivated attempts at developing a full-fledged theory of intelligent design consistently fall short of the standards of academic peer review, which leaves the intelligent design movement with a collection of faith-based arguments that criticize mainstream science but offer no coherent alternative. And, and here's, uh, here's what this guy would say instead. Rather than that intelligent design stuff, rather than God who creates everything, right? From, he says, modern science does offer a, a tenable theory um, Let's see, when considering humans, we're not far off from the technological ability to transport Earth-based life to other planets. Carl Sagan and his contemporaries hypothesized that extraterrestrial intelligent beings, if they exist, might try to do the same thing. From this speculation born, the concept of extraterrestrial intelligent designers are possible for life here on Earth. So in other words, aliens coming and, and planting life in us and then leaving away. And, and they think, well, that's, that's, that's scientifically plausible. <laughs> rather than a, a transcendent God who creates all things by the word of his mouth. And it was Crick of Watson and Crick who liked his a, a, attraction, particularly based on the idea in astrobiology known as panspermia, in which there are, there are um, biological things floating in the universe that kind of hit planets and maybe land. So talking about things from the moon landing on the earth and things from Mars. And they claim that some... Things from Mars has landed on the Earth. I, I don't know about that. They journey through space and then land here. So they're, they're basically saying, well, what, what happened here, well, you've got life, is that these uh, astro, whatever, these far-out extraterrestrial like light forms, microbes, just kind of floating through the universe. Forget the four Kelvin, right, that's out there in the universe. And it comes, it floats, and just kind of lands on the Earth and then begins to seed and sprout and everything we got. That's where their faith is. Professing to be wise, I do believe that they became fools. And he says, interplanetary panspermia is a viable hypothesis. I'd rather believe in one miracle God and everything else works out. But he's believing in, you know, things coming from hundreds of millions of light years away that just happen to find their place on the planet Earth. However, they beg the question because... The premise of directed panspermia requires the existence of intelligent life on other planets. And then you've got to ask, okay, well, how'd that life get there? And then you're back to the same conundrum. It just cannot be explained. But here's what it is. Professing to be wise, they become fools in believing this stuff. Well, it's interesting here. If you look at verse 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools. I think that speaks of our society. Who's more, who's more atheistic than our society? Well, there's some other Scandinavian countries that are, but I think they've got that through their wisdom. Right? It's through their smarts that they get there. But what happens when you go to uh, a country, maybe a third world country, or a, a tribe that's never been visited before? What do you see there? You see an eminent understanding of the spiritual. Although, oftentimes, it's wrong. I think verse 23 explains the, the godless societies, say, in deep, remote Africa or India that are far from the gospel. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Right? Oftentimes, right, you, you, you go and you see primitive religions, whether it's animistic religions or, or Hindu religions or basic religions, and they're always setting up these shrines, these images, these idols, and they're they're worshiping them. 
But see, there's some spirit. They, they know of some spiritual existence. They know of some spiritual. There's, there's got to be something bigger. They know God, but they've denied God. And they've built up these, these images of things. And Paul says they're without excuse. One of the big questions that always comes up whenever dealing with uh, this passage, say Romans chapter 1, or dealing with the aborigine way far away that's never heard the gospel, what, what do people often think? Oh, well, that's not fair. But how, how, how can God condemn them for not believing in Jesus if he has never told them about Jesus? The whole thrust here of Romans 1 is that they have no excuse. Verse 20. The whole deal here is they've exchanged the glory of God to worship these petty little idols. They are not innocent people out in the bush. Even since the creation of the world, Paul says that very, very clear. He says that in verse 20. That even, even since the creation of the world, this has all been true. So even before the coming of Christ, this is true. And I say, if you want to understand Romans, if you want to grasp Romans, you've got to be convinced in your mind that those who've never heard of Jesus are lost in their sins. Because they're without excuse. Because God is known to them and they've rejected that God and they have created these idols, whatever they're going to worship after. And I just say this, Rock Valley Bible Church, but by the grace of God, there would we go. Why is it that God has allowed us to live in America where the gospel is abundant? Why has he allowed us to live here and now after Christ where we see so much? And why were we not those people living in the bush who saw God but rejected him and never heard of Jesus? It's by the grace of God. And Romans is all about the gospel of grace. It's all about grace. So this message, with no excuse, none of us have an excuse, the only way we're going to be right with God is, is through Jesus, who, who died on the cross for our sins. It's God coming and rescuing those who had no hope. And we're going to see next week just what, what happens with, uh, with people, what God does. I alluded to this last week. God gave them over. We're going to look at the sins that God gave them over to. He, just, he says, you want to walk in that sin? Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And sometimes, you got to catch this too, is sin is not the thing that causes the wrath of God, but sin is the very wrath of God. Present tense, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed. And we'll see that next week. Well, let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that we would, we would look, God, at you and look at our own sin God, and realize that that apart from the grace of God, we are condemned. Lord, I would pray that you would help us to see, God, just ways we excuse sin in our own heart, ways in which we might think ourselves to be righteous, ways in which we might, uh, God, think things aren't so bad. God, this is dark news. This is the bad news. Things are bad. And yet the good news is that for all who believe in Christ, as bad as it is, as dark as it is, the light has come in Jesus. And we can come before you, we can stand before you, not on our own merits, but on the merits of him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so, God, I pray you'd, you'd, you'd build these convictions deep in us, God, of how none of us are on the planet without excuse, but we're all under sin. Even we sinned in Adam, our federal head, Romans chapter 5. God, but thanks be to God that Jesus Christ came for our sins. And may we glory in that, O Lord.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.